Hi, welcome everyone to Views from the Bridge. I'm John Fisher, President of Bridgeport Asset Management. Bridgeport manages both publicly traded and private asset portfolios for a wide range of investors and their advisors. I wanna welcome Jason Koenig today. Jason is co-founder and managing partner of ITE Management, which manages the ITE Whale Fund. Bridgeport is an investor in ITE through its Bridgeport Alternative Income Fund, which provides investors with diversified global institutional caliber exposure to income generating private asset strategies. Our Alternative Income Fund is currently invested in over 25 individual investment strategies, including ITE Rail Fund, and provides exposure to over 100,000 individual assets. The purpose of today's chat is to spotlight ITE strategy within our fund and hopefully help you gain a better understanding of what railcar finance is all about. Jason, welcome again, and thanks for speaking with us today. John, thanks for having me here. We, uh, we appreciate working with you and, uh, and the support of your firm as we continue to uh, march along on our rail strategy. Why don't we jump right in, Jason? Um, Maybe, you know, I always like to uh, ask uh, sort of guests um, how they got started in their business, what their background is, because uh, I find it's always interesting how sort of people came to a specific strategy. So, yeah, please kind of give us a bit about your background and how you started uh, IT. Great, great. So IT stands for Industrial Transportation Equipment, and um, we focus on as you highlighted rail and a bunch of other big pieces of metal, intermodal and, and uh, other transportation assets. I grew up in, uh, in Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Everybody I knew was uh, more or less in the auto industry in some form. So I grew up with a natural affinity to big hunks of metal. So this almost, this feels like a natural transition. Um, I, um, I, I spent about 10 years of my career doing distressed buyouts. And with distressed buyouts, there's a big focus on hard assets core assets and cash. And so um, again, ITE started is a natural transition to that because we do focus on big, hard assets with a, with a rate laser focus on cash flow. We started the firm because we saw a bunch of wonderful operating assets that institutional investors didn't have any real exposure to. And there's a lot of reasons for that, um, not least of which is they're really hard. You need a big team to do it. So your investors and you have the opportunity to invest in equities for appreciation and credit for yield and private equity for multiple expansion with management help. But then there's these, this group of operating assets, rail cars in particular, that are a little bit of everything. And they're operating assets, they're a portfolio of, of, of bond-like cash flow streams, and there's a huge data piece. So we launched ITE about 10 years ago with that mandate in mind, how to get investors institutional exposure to operating assets in a low volatile cash flow stream. Um, today, we manage a little bit under $3 billion of equity. We, we have about $5.5 billion worth of assets. So we do put leverage, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, there's about 45 people within ITE, but we've got about 540 people within the IT Rail Fund at the repair and maintenance facilities and our leasing platforms, really thinking about touching and working those assets every day. Um, and it's, it's created a great rail fund um, we've got a, a fairly, we've, we've delivered to our investors a net 11% um, return over the past, uh, on an annual basis uh, around uh, over the past eight, nine years. 
That's great. That's great. Maybe just to give people a little bit more detail, maybe give us like a hypothetical example of a, of a rail car transaction that you would do. Cause I'm sure people are kind of wondering like, how does this work? How do you source the rail cars and sort of how are they leased out? Who are they being leased to? And maybe you could, um, you know, just sort of talk about a, you know, more kind of hype, you know, sort of hypothetical type of type of situation. Sure. So I'm going to paint a little bit of a picture of what the rail market is first. Okay. So, great. yeah. So our rail system, I like to think about it as the the arteries and capillaries of our of our economy, right? They're pumping goods and services all throughout the United States and Canada and a little bit of Mexico. Um, and we and it's a real strategic, wonderful asset. Um, there are um, about several thousand end users of rail cars. So what who we're dealing with are not the railroads per se, though they are a customer, but we're dealing with every sort of company that you come in contact with every day, ranging from ADM and Bungie in the agriculture to Exxon in the, in the energy sector and chemical sector to companies you've never heard of before. What we're providing to them and what they need is a critical asset that's really a part of their infrastructure. And without these assets, their facility, their agriculture, their chemical plant can't function, right? So it's a critical as asset. Um, the reason why they, people lease it from us for various reasons, but the, the industry in general is a leased industry. What we're trying to provide for our investors through this structure and, and through the structure of the industry are a, a good long-term stable cash flow. Right? That's number one with what we're trying to do. Right. And the second, it's an uncorrelated asset. So um, stocks may go up, bonds may go up or down, and, uh, but our assets should kind of be steady and moving along. Um, the third is an inflation correlation. Um, and then the fourth is great downside protection. We do all of that through a couple, a couple of key characteristics of the asset class. One, our contracts and our customers are leasing assets on long-term contracts. And they're a lot like your automobile lease. They're considered a take or pay contract. What that means is they have to pay no matter what, whether they use it or not, right? right. Whether you park it or don't park it. So that helps us start building this long-term flow of, of cash flow. The second thing is these are relatively cheap assets. So an average new rail car costs around $100,000. A 35-year-old 40-year rail car could cost $10,000. They last for up to 50, 50 years. So, um, so it's a very small, so it's a critical aspect, but it's a small cost and part of the supply chain. Our leases will range from $100 to $2,000 per car per month. On average, it's around $700, $800 per car per month to move something that in finished form could be worth several hundred thousand dollars to upwards of several million dollars. So again, critical, critical infrastructure, low cost. Um, and then finally, these assets are relatively in, in high demand. Supply and demand is fairly balanced and it's generally um, supply constrained. Um, what, that, what I mean by that is almost no rail car is built on spec. It's not like you can, uh, an end user can show up at the rail car manufacturer 
like you can at your auto dealer and say, I'll take that one in red. Right. You got you to order in advance. It, there's usually a backlog. So again, now you have a little bit of scarcity in, in the asset class. Um, that's the rail car market in general. Right. And then, um, you know, out of curiosity, like what's the range of sort of lease terms on a rail car? Like is it one year, five year, three year? Like how, you know, how does that sure. work? So our customers, um, our customers will enter into a contract. A new build will typically be to a, a blue chip customer, one that you're, you're, you've probably heard of before. And it'll be for five to 10 years. And a rail car in general on an unlevered basis will make its money back in eight to 12 years. And on a levered basis over four to seven years. So generally speaking with a new rail car, our goal is to try to make back the initial investment plus a slight return during that first renewal period. It's a right. 50 year asset. So it gives us a lot of time to- So it lasts 50 years of rail cars. 50 years right. it'll last typically, it'll, it'll have a 50 year life with a certain amount of maintenance along the way. It, it, it'll depend on the asset, um, what it's used for. So, right. um, so it, it can range from, I'd say 35 to 50 years. Uh, we've got assets right now that are, that are running at 50 years and eventually you got to take them out of service. And those are great assets to have because you've made a ton of money on them. The cash flow is pretty great. Um, maintenance is a little high, but, but they're nice assets to have. And is the ITE rail fund, is it, is it typically buying new rail car assets from a rail car manufacturer or is it buying um, older assets or midlife assets from some other, other party that like already you know, owns it and has like already purchased a new, you know, some sort of time in the past. Right. So this gets, this gets to what we think we're providing to our investor base. And the short answer is we buy all shapes and sizes of rail cars, um, both new and used. And we've done that through creating partnerships with both manufacturers, with operating lessors around the country. So people that are managing rail cars. And then, and then we also have our own leasing platform within the IT rail fund. And that manages the bulk of our rail cars. What we think that we're doing and why we think that we've created a unique both fund and way to manage rail cars is we get back to that operating asset. Primarily these assets were owned by operating companies. Right. We come in and bring operations to it. And our, our team is heavily focused on operations and we lead with that. But then you get to portfolio management and construction. And that portfolio management construction, if you could create a five axis matrix at a high level, what we're doing is we're layering our rail cars based on car type, commodity type, um, type of asset, age of asset, credit quality, and when those assets renew, like when the lease is right. expired. Right. Kind of like so, a bill, you know, like you typically see, like in real estate, they'll talk about um, how many, you know, X kind of percent of kind of lease revenue rolling off every year in a building or something like that, like an office building, I guess. That's exactly right. Only the, only the, and, and I think real estate's a good comp to what we're doing. Only the difference is that there's two key critical differences. One, our asset is a wasting asset. And we know that after 50 years, they'll be taken out of service. So supply, um, and this helps, this helps manage supply and demand. And it keeps us in equilibrium. It's why you see such low volatility. In soft markets, less supply comes in, more supply goes out. Whereas in real estate, you're never really getting rid of buildings. And the right. other part of it, where I think it's kind of a similar comp is, 
we are trading cash flow for depreciation. Whereas, and, and that's why you see such high cash yield. It's a depreciated, depleting asset. Whereas again, in real estate, you tend to see more, a lot of value can be around the terminal value and kind of lower right. cash flow and then more of a terminal value. Right. So right. we get the more front end cash flow. Right. And then, so obviously many of your lessees would be like major, major shippers as you sort of kind of alluded to earlier, big energy companies, big kind of commodity companies, anyone really shipping goods over, over rail, I guess, and any, any quantity could potentially be one of your, you know, like one of your like lessees, right? Like, is that, and, and then, so to what extent do you also lease out though to like major railway companies? Right. So the railroads, generally speaking, and they'll own different types of rail cars, but generally speaking, um, they own mostly an asset called intermodal rail cars, which is what you will see containers um, shipped around the country on. And that's something that's very easy to take an asset on or off. Right. Everything else, um, I call a specialty rail car, and that's the vast majority of all the rail cars. It's where a, a, a company has to put its product in and out of it. You're putting your grain in and out of it. You're putting your oil in and out of it. You're putting your chemical in and out of it. It's usually empty one way along the way. Um, so all of our customers are, you know, include the railroads and the industrial base. But what we're really giving to our investor base right now, what we have is we're, we're leasing out right now to about 800 different customers. The marketplace is around 2,000. We're moving 350 different commodities around the country. Um, we're doing that on 1,800, a little bit less, I think, 1,600 different contracts. And our leases roll off um, over a period um, of about 10, over the next 10 to 12 years, though it's a little front-loaded. You have more of them rolling off in the next four or five years and then a long tail. The railroads are one of those customers. And in fact, one of the railroads are our largest customer. But that customer is pretty small relative to our base. That makes up 3.5% of our customer. That customer accounts for 3.5% of our rail cars. And so that's your highly diversified. Yeah, so you're right, highly diversified, which is great, obviously. Um, is there any other way to get pure play rail car leasing exposure for institutional or individual investors out there? Is there? Do you have any pure play competition, or are they just groups in inside larger companies that are doing the same thing? Yeah. So to date, so the short answer is not that I'm aware of. There's no other pure play opportunity. Um, you know, again, I get back to where these rail cars are effectively operating assets. So when you look at our competition um, for ownership of these assets, so who, uh, in terms of size, who are our customers leasing from? It tends to be banks are large owners of these assets. You tend to see manufacturers um, will use their balance sheet to support their manufacturing. That includes Union Tank Car, which is owned by Warren Buffett, and Trinity Rail, which is a public company. Um, I would say our, our, our closest competition that we look at is a company called GATX. It's a diversified public uh, leasing company. It's a well-run rail, they've got a well-run rail business. Um, but, but those are kind of broad operating businesses. Um, from a investor standpoint of view, you know, we also can't think, I think we're the only pure play. That's great. That's great. Um, you'd said that since you started, you had generated net rates to return to your end investors uh, of about 11% annually. Um, 
you know, not holding you to this because obviously everyone in the investment business knows it's hard to sort of project rates of return. But given the inflationary environment that we're in, I'll sort of, you know, re kind of purpose my question. Like, you know, how do you think inflation going forward will impact sort of kind of returns overall in the rail car leasing sector? Obviously everything, you know, all investors now are kind of requiring higher rates of return just because risk-free rates have gone up a couple of points here this year. I'm just curious how you see that flowing through the rail car leasing segment over time. Right. So the short answer is we are pushing up lease rates and lease rates do rise with inflation and interest rates. Um, right now, we are increasing lease rates between 15 and 20% on average as we renew those assets. Our contracts don't have inflation escalators, um, but because supply and demand are fairly in equilibrium and, and by that nature, supply is fairly constrained. As you're bringing on new assets, those and the cost of those, which go up with inflation and interest rates, those will tend to pull up lease rates. Um, and that allows us to push up lease rates as we're renewing. So to give you an example, and again, this is just an example, they're not all like this, but if you were to buy a certain type of grain hopper in 2019, pre-COVID in kind of a more benign inflation environment, it would cost you around 90 to $95,000 and you'd lease it for somewhere between 600 and $800 per car per month. Today, that same rail car will cost you somewhere between $110,000 and $120,000, and you'll lease that for about $1,100, uh, I'm sorry, $1,100 or more per car per month. So you can see the cost of the new build goes up as the lease rate, and that allows us to push right. up lease rates across the board. Right. I might add also, like again, this is where we think we're particularly good, and that comes through the operational focus, the portfolio management and construction, and our use of data. To us, those are the three, um, the three legs to a stool that we focus on to manage our portfolio. And the information and data that we get, which is a unique data set to our firm, which we've been building over the past 10 years, it's through all of our assets, allows us not only to understand what we own and manage our assets, but slowly start to create some predictive values around what's happening in the market and allows us to push up lease rates and manage the assets. Right. So if we were talking three to five years from now, do you think that the net investment rates return could, could be higher just sort of potentially or not necessarily? You know, like assuming inflation maybe is higher and risk-free rates sort of land a couple points higher than they were, uh, you know, 12 months ago. Do you think that well, looking at higher rates potentially? Yeah, I think, so again, to your point, we're low to, we're low to uh, yeah, predict, yeah. but I think, I think the way that we look at this is that we see that our assets are clearly moving and the spread is remaining firm. It lags a little bit, but that spread goes up. Right. Um, because these assets, like, you know, as in any asset class, if, if, if you see, if we start seeing returns um, exceed, you know, historical trends, you'll see more assets coming right. in um, right. by, by, but in general, I, I would think as we're, as we continue to push up lease rates, um, you'll see kind of steady returns moving up, kind of keeping that spread um, uh, relative to the cost of debt. So right. in some respects, to your point, you know, the returns will go up a little bit. I think the other area where we know, where we, we, we like this environment is we're pushing up lease rates 
Um, we're generating a lot of cash. We, we tend to hedge and manage our debt. So as we push up lease rates and hedge our debt, that should increase the cash flow, the net cash flow going to our right. investors. And additionally, and who knows when rates go up or go down, but if we're raising rates, they're on long-term contracts. And if you, if you look at the yield curve today, it's inverted. If that yield curve drops, we'll have high cash flow streams, a lower cost of debt. Now you see that spread widening for right. extended period right. of time, which is really favorable to us. So do you fix like a large portion of the cost of debt, the sort of borrowings uh, that you've incurred against your sort of rail car portfolio is a, is a large percentage, yeah. That's right, we think, we think that leverage, you know, when we think about the risks to us and to our investors, we think leverage is the biggest risk. Um, yeah. And what we really are always guarding against is exactly what we've seen, which is a quick spike in lease rates. Yeah. I'm sorry, a quick spike in interest rates. So when we acquire assets, we tend to hedge almost 100%, if not 100%. So we're currently hedged 100%, and it's helped us keep our cost of financing on our current book down. And now we got it, and as we acquire new assets, we just make sure that we've got that spread between new financing and the lease term. Sure. Um, I'd be sort of remiss not to ask about COVID and how COVID impacted rail car leasing and how it impacted your strategy and how that all kind of played out. Yep. So we, we went through COVID fairly well, and in some respects, extremely well. So our returns did not suffer through COVID. And I think COVID is an extreme example of how we behave in a recessionary environment. Because we're a critical asset, because we're low cost, and COVID was a good example, you never knew when it was gonna turn, right? If you don't have our rail car, then you're gonna miss the turn, you're gonna miss the rebound. And so what happens is most companies, not all, but most companies will make the decision that they'd rather have the asset and not need it than need it and not have it. Because the surest way to underperform the market and even lose your job if you're a supply chain manager is not have a critical rail car Right. move your product or get materials in. So during COVID, we actually saw our lease renewal rate increase. Um, we saw our, what we ended up doing is we did, and you'll typically see this in recession. Initially, there'll be a little bit of fear and you'll lower lease rates a little bit, maybe five to 10%. And then you'll wait and see where equilibrium hits. hits and equilibrium usually hits within 10 to 12 months um, as Assets continue to leave the market because we have that 50-year life. So as they hit that 50-year right. life, they'll slowly leave. And because assets aren't produced on spec, it's because someone ordered them. In COVID, nobody ordered rail cars. Very few people ordered rail cars. Right. So in a normal year, you'll produce 55,000 rail cars per year. During, during the 2020, I believe the amount was 25,000. Wow. So supply contracts very quickly. You move to equilibrium fairly quickly. And... And then you, you know, you'll drop rates until you hit equilibrium and then you'll start moving them up. So again, COVID was a good example of an extreme case of the behavior in the marketplace. Just because people aren't using the rail car doesn't mean they're not paying us their lease because they're on a contract and they've got to pay no matter what. Most of the time, because they'll, they almost always would rather have the asset, the negotiation is less around yes or no and more around how much and for how long. Interesting. So what are some of the risks 
you know, some of the things that keep you up at night with the strategy, some of the things that you try to mitigate, you know, there's risks in every strategy, unfortunately, is we're right. still waiting for the, for the right. perfect strategy that has no risk and a great sort of double digit rate of return. But, you know, like what are some of the things that, uh, you know, yeah, uh, well, to worry about? I, I feel like investing in asset management is a good, uh, people always ask what keeps you up at night. I've never been a good sleeper. Um, so I, 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 uh, it doesn't bother me. The lack of sleep is par for the course. And in some respects, I'm built for it. But I think that we, when we think about the things that, when we think about the risks to our strategy, it's basically two primary ones. And then I'd say a distant third. We touched on, on the big ones already. Number one is leverage. Yeah. Right? We tend to under lever relative to the marketplace because right. we do think that's the biggest risk to our strategy. We also think that our, what we're trying to give you is a low volatile cash flow stream and we're not trying to shoot the moon. Right. So generally speaking, our target leverage is around $2 of debt to $1 of equity. And we've always been under that. So that's about a 68%, 67% loan right. to value. We tend to run around 62%. The marketplace bounces around between 75 and 80%. So we tend to under lever relative to that. There's, I can point to only one default over the past 20, 30 years. Um, so I think the default risk is still very low, but we like that low right. leverage, just manage that risk. So only one over the last, sorry, 30 years? One major one that we can think of. Um, right. There may be others that we haven't found, but we can, we can point to one. And, and that one was doing, um, it was just signing up short-term rates in a high environment and having long-term right. debt. Which is a classic asset liability mismatch. Right. But like in the fund, how often do you have a lease default? Is it is good it question? Yeah, very. I would say very rarely. Okay. On if you look at our balance sheet or you look at the balance sheet of public companies, you'll see that the loss reserves that they carry based on asset value is in the basis points. It's usually twenty right. to thirty basis points. The reason for that is, you know, again, it's a critical asset. Um, if a company goes bankrupt, they will almost always renew, uh, assume the contract. Because again, right. if you don't have those rail cars, unless you're liquidating out, yeah. um, you can't do anything. So we, we, we tend to be, to, tend to get preference payments in that respect. Um, if not, we're able to pull back our rail car and it'll take a little bit of time but then we'll move it on to another customer. Right. Um, so the losses are fairly minimal. We've suffered very few losses in the, in the eight or nine years that we've been um, investing in rail cars. Most have been around one or two companies that, um, that went bankrupt and we were able to recover over time. Right, just by basically releasing out the asset to another. To another That's right, and you have, kind of, you have a higher claim in the, in, the, in the bankruptcy, but you pull the asset out very quickly. Yeah, so it'll you to move around. And so, are most of your lessees would they be categorized as investment grade or sort of large, like at least larger kind of corporates? Yep. Yeah. Um, on a weighted average basis, our our lessees have a investment grade. To your point, um, rating it's about a triple B plus. Okay. Um, we have. Newer assets tend to be on larger investment grade companies that have, you know, investment grade or investment grade ratings. Right. 
We also have customers that are that that are smaller, and we tend for the lower uh, rated customers or those that are non-rated, we tend to move them on to lower. I'm sorry, older assets. We right. made money on those assets. Um, they may t- they may generate a little bit lower return, but it's on a lower credit quality. Um, right. And so you you tend to manage your credit risk that way. Right. Um, I kind of interrupted you though before you talked about the first risk, which was, I think, sort of leverage. And I think you said there's maybe three kind of major ones that you guys are yep. always managing. So number one, number one by, is to us leverage. Number two, um, and a close second is portfolio construction. And again, right. we talked on this a little bit and you know, it won't surprise you that diversification really helps solve any sort of problems. You know, again, to highlight, we're moving 350 different commodities with, with around 800 different customers. There are derivative exposures to a lot of different sectors within the economy that do have relative volatility. Right. As you had a bigger and bigger portfolio, that volatility tends to to mute each other and to counteract each other Um, because all these commodities really aren't correlated to each other. So what I mean by that is what's going on in the chemical market has very little to what's going on in the lumber market to what's very little that's going on in the grain market. So you want this big, broad, diversified portfolio. I think we've done that as we highlighted, and that's a key focus for us. We're constantly thinking about how we rotate our portfolio and bring different customers or different asset classes in or out of the portfolio. Right. So those are the two biggest risks. Manage your leverage, have a big diversified portfolio. And then I would say a very, very distant third um, is regulatory risk. Right. It's a regulated environment. We're moving things all over. Um, it's rare that you see regulations that destroy value, but it can happen from time right. to time. And that's why, again, you want this big diversified portfolio. Right, 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 right. You know, broadly speaking, I might add, you know, we own around 65,000 rail cars, little pieces, right? With a, and, and therefore, there's really nothing that I can think of right now where it would impact every one of those. Right. So there's no silver bullet that would cause problems. Sure. But it's managing that portfolio and how you think about it. I just have two um, sort of two more final questions. One, maybe just talk about your team a bit more. And because it's quite extensive and it's deep and the different areas that they kind of work in in terms of your operating platform and just approximately like how many people you have in each because it's quite, uh, quite extensive. I know. Great. Great. So I think. Um, within ITE, we've got 45 people and we break those teams up into multiple different groups on the investment side, we have the operating team and that, op, that though, this is, these are folks that come from a deep industry background, having 20 or 30 years managing and running rail cars. When we started the firm, um, my senior operating partner is a gentleman named Jim Unger. Uh, Jim's been in the rail business for over 40 years and ran American rail car industries uh, and American rail car leasing. So deep, deep expertise within the rail space. Um, and then built on with engineers, maintenance experts. Um, and that's just at the, at the fund level. Um, we'll talk in a moment about, um, well, actually we'll talk about it now. The, um, at the in, within the fund, we have an operating platform that has 80 people dedicated to managing and leasing the rail cars on a day-to-day basis, 19 repair and maintenance facilities within the fund that employ uh, nearly 600 people 
throughout the Midwest, uh, the Southern states, and also Canada. That's just, so that's just on the operating side. Um, then within ITE, we've got a credit team. Um, we talked about leverage. They're, they manage and think about leverage you know, every day as we, as we buy assets. Um, we also have a risk management team that's focusing on all the different risks. Like their job is to identify and think about all the risks that are affecting us on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. Again, starting with interest rates, but also thinking about commodities and where we are in different in various cycles. Um, because again, we're touching all these different uh, uh, commodities. Um, and then finally, in addition to all of the other fund level employees that you would expect, accounting, FP&A, uh, and IT, we've got our, what we call ITE labs. IT labs we think is very unique. Um, this is our data team uh, comprised of data engineers and data analysts, um, data scientists who are taking all the information that we've gotten through our rail portfolio and a rail fleet over the past uh, near decade. Um, we've been cleaning it, putting it into a database and then analyzing it. And there's kind of three levels to how we analyze that. First and foremost, it's just knowing what you have, which you'd be surprised how few people know exactly what they own and where it is and how it's performing, right? So just what do you own and how's it performing? And we've got that at our fingertips and it's, we're, we, we tend to be kind of data junkies within ITE. So we can, we can look at that and, and try and understand where we're performing best, worst, and where we need to improve. Right. The next is how you manage those assets. What customers need them a lot, what customers need them a little, where are we seeing trends? How many inquiries are we getting in? And then finally, and this is kind of early days where we're focusing on is, can we use all this information as well as factors going on in the marketplace to start creating predictive trends? And that data, you know, we think is, a, is you know, we're dealing with, as I highlighted, about 65,000, 70,000 and growing little pieces. It's really a giant statistical model. So how we manage that, that data is critically important. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, super impressive team, really. Just the scale of the operations and the focus is uh, it's great. Um, it's a great team. And we just had our holiday party and they also seem to really like each other. <laughs> that's that's uh, certainly always, uh, you know, always very important. Um, just to end things off, like I know that you guys are starting to expand into other transportation finance areas. So I was interested to uh, have you speak a little bit about that and sort of tell our audience a little bit more about some of the other areas that you're kind of looking at kind of getting into in the transportation finance area. Yep. So we've got a great, I think over the past eight or nine years, we've built a model and we've gotten better and better at it at how to handle um, real assets. And, and we're applying that knowledge, that data and that operations and portfolio management to other asset classes. So right now they include intermodal assets, which we broadly define as containers, chassis, trucks, trailers, and tangentially related asset classes. We've got a fabulous senior operating partner named Jennifer Poli, who joined us having been in the business for 20 years, helping build some of, build some of the largest businesses in the space and also running some of the largest, excuse me, largest businesses in the space. So she's been growing out that team as we acquire assets and they have very similar characteristics, long-term cash flow, high cash flow, non-correlation, uh, inflation correlation, great downside protection. Um, transportation, as we look kind of longer term down the field, transportation 
accounts for a, a large amount of uh, CO2 and, and, and pollution within the air. So this is another area that we're focusing on as we look at next-gen um, transportation assets in and around these spaces, because it fits really well with what our team is doing. And we're getting a lot of inquiries from our customers about how, uh, when I say our customers, I mean customers within the rail and the intermodal area, about how they can improve and what other assets are available there. So those are areas that we continue to focus on and expand. And finally, we're also looking at, and we have small portfolios of um, assets that are moving goods and services around the Great Lakes through the, through the coastal waters, um, not, not ocean-going vessels, which is, a, which is a, a more complicated business, but something that, that kind of is very complementary to our rail business and kind of links up with them. So those are other areas that we're pushing into. That's great. That's great. Um, well, I want to say, Jason, like, I want to thank you very much for, you know, like sort of having us be a part of your fund. It's, you know, certainly been a pleasure to be an LP in the fund and to work with you guys. Um, and I want to thank you for spending all the time with us today. I really, really appreciate it. This has been super interesting. It's a very specific area, but it's a very interesting area. So yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And thanks for, uh, for listening to us. We, uh, we love it. It's, uh, yeah. We get a little passionate about it, which is sometimes a little weird. So we, we tend to go off in, in, in a lot of detail. So thanks for listening and, and thanks for, uh, for your interest in what we're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much again. All the best. Thank you.